Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends. Happy holidays and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. As we begin the Christmas holidays, you'd think we could take comfort in the fact that now that the Electoral College has voted, we know the election's official and Joe Biden's the next president of the United States. If only that were the case. But as crazy as it seems, Donald Trump and his allies are still trying to overturn the election on two fronts, in the courts and in the Congress, in ways that are unusual, maybe illegal, and perhaps unconstitutional deliberately trying to undo the expressed will of the American people in a free and fair election. Should there be any consequences for those who, despite the evidence of no voter fraud, still try to overthrow the election? Yes, there are consequences and people should be held responsible, say both of our guests today. Les Francis, is former Deputy White House Chief of Staff to President Jimmy Carter, and Scott Harshbarger, two-time Attorney General of Massachusetts, co-founder of Lawyers Defending American Democracy, and former National President of Common Cause. Les Francis and Scott Harshbarger, so good to uh, join both of you. Thank you for taking time for the Bill Press Pod. We have just experienced what almost everyone agrees was a free and fair election. Uh, the Electoral College has voted 306 to 232. And yet, led by Donald Trump, there are still ongoing efforts to overturn on a, this election on at least two fronts that I'd like to talk to you both about, the courts and uh, the Congress. So let's start with the Texas lawsuit filed in the Supreme Court by the Texas Attorney General Paxton, challenging uh, the election results in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Uh, General Harshbarger, let me start with you. Uh, what standing does the Texas Attorney General have to um, challenge the election results in four other states? First of all, technically, uh, the Attorney General can sue another state uh, and get original jurisdiction in the Supreme Court. And that's the last technical point I'm going to make here. In this case, there's simply no basis whatsoever. Uh, they had no facts. It was a frivolous lawsuit. Uh, the conduct here was way after the fact, belatedly, uh, clearly not in the interest of their state, which is the responsibility of the attorney general, but really was either at the bidding or simply to, ple to, to please uh, the loyalty of the President of the United States at a time when, uh, when he is challenging and trying to undermine core democratic democracy institutions. And that simply uh, cannot stand. Uh, the, the fact is that uh, 
that in this case, the attorneys general who acted, acted not in the interests of their own states, but in terms of a partisan self-interest to overturn the most secure election in our lifetime, uh, the core element of a democracy. And that simply it was the basis for ours, lawyers defending American democracy, raising the same questions about their conduct as we had about Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and others who have engaged in over 50 or 60 frivolous lawsuits at this time uh, challenging uh, uh, this election. Uh, so we think it's entirely appropriate and long overdue for lawyers, the profession, to stand up and be heard instead of remaining in some kind of stunning silence. So, Scott, I want to come back and talk about the consequences possible for these attorneys that filed the lawsuit. But, Les, let me turn to you and ask you, 126 members of Congress joined this lawsuit, Republican members led by the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy. Um, what does that say? What does that mean for them? First of all, in a way, I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed that 126 House Republicans would uh, support, embrace um, this lawsuit. I mean, it's uh, it's a height of irresponsibility. Um, but, you know, it's just not surprising because the Republican Party has become a cult. Uh, and... Uh, Whatever the dear leader wants, uh, it looks like a majority of congressional Republicans will will go along with. Within that 126, however, is a specific group that I find uh, particularly suspect, and that's the 16 House members who were elected in those four states. Uh, they are claiming in their brief and in their statements that the elections in those four states were were fraudulent, were were faulty, and and that the uh, whole election was tainted as a result. Well, that election also elected them. It wasn't just the the presidential contest; it was all the ballot down ballot races, including races for Congress. It seems to me that that's a confession of sorts uh, on their part, uh, and I think it raises a legitimate issue as to whether or not those 16 members should be seated by the House of Representatives. Let me ask you this. Could the House refuse to seat them? The, uh, what's interesting, most people don't realize that the Constitution says that the other than age and, and citizenship requirements, the, the Senate and the House uh, set the rules for the membership. Uh, who can be a member or not be a member, either either admitting them or, in some cases, expelling them. So clearly, the House has the authority not to seat them, uh, should they choose uh, to exercise it. You call them the uh, sorry 16. Uh, Scott, let me come back to you. You called this a, the again, we're talking about the Texas lawsuit uh, filed in front of the Supreme Court, which the Supreme Court summarily rejected. You called it a frivolous lawsuit. Are, are there consequences of a frivolous lawsuit filed in the Supreme Court by 18 attorneys general? Of course there are. I mean, the one, the core of our ethical rules as lawyers is that you're supposed to have a factual basis 
for any allegations you make. You are supposed to be able to prove cases in court, whether or not they win or not, that have some basis in fact. The, the reality is when they filed this lawsuit, there had already been 60 cases dismissed out of hand by judges of every political stripe appointed by every different kind of, of, of Republican or Democratic president. They were treated as almost bizarre. And so at this point, after all of these 86 judges had essentially declined all the, these steps, then they do the Hail Mary pass at the, at the instigation of the president, uh, calling them or rallying them to, uh, to, to write uh, and, and file this lawsuit, which essentially was anti-democratic, anti-federalism. Here's conservative Republican attorneys general who believe, hopefully, rightly, in state sovereignty, trying to dictate the so to other sovereign states. That's why there are heroes here. Let's think about this. The Ohio attorney general, Republican, uh, stands up and says, no, this cannot stand. Uh, this is about state sovereignty. In other words, the case itself had no basis. The underlying facts is an election that has already been declared secure, been tested in every element in the court. That's why these extreme behavior by these attorneys general, particularly attorneys general, who stand for law enforcement and represent their states, uh, to file this lawsuit was, cannot be justified as a legitimate state action. It can only be justified as currying political favor with the president of the United States or the base. And that is not the role of a state attorney general, Republican or Democrat. So what could be the consequences? Could they be fined? Could they face sanctions? Could they lose their license? And who would decide? This is a very good question, because one of the challenges of the last year we've seen, and particularly the last few months, Bill, has been that many disciplinary state authorities have not been willing to act. We filed a complaint in the D.C. Uh, circuit about Attorney General Barr because we maintained that he was not serving as attorney general in the interest of the public, but in the interest of the president of the United States and violating ethical codes in several specific uh, respects. Our position is that this warrants investigation by state disciplinary authorities. If the courts are not going to do it with sanctions, which they could, it also could they could also face at least investigations by their state agencies and disciplinary authorities, just as we've asked them to do with Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. The problem, of course, is that this would be a unique kind of circumstance. But our argument is, if we're not going to hold lawyers to the ethical standards of this profession, when the attack is on the core elements of our democracy, on the core principles of the rule of law, uh, in terms of our norms and values and institutions, whenever are we going to hold lawyers accountable? Of course, there's a political process to take care of that. But this is a question for us of when is the legal profession responsible for policing its own, for taking action when appropriate, when lawyers act not as lawyers in credible information, but in fact act as partisan, totally as partisans, and in fact, act as interests 
that have nothing to do with their states, but with, frankly, the personal desires of the president of the United States. So, so Scott, well, so let me ask you, have um, you're calling for this action. Has anything like this happened before where an attorney general uh, or attorneys general have been um, reprimanded, let's say, by members of their own profession? Well, it, it does occur because often it's because they uh, the, the parties that the attorneys general sue. For example, when I was attorney general, we sued the tobacco companies. Yeah. Um, there, there were, and, and this occurred when you sue gun manufacturers. When you, when you sue Exxon, when you sue the big industrial uh, manufacturers, often the the allegations are that you've acted totally politically. You're you're acting as a partisan. You're not acting as an attorney general. Really, you're being a partisan. And the answer to that is. You know, we may well be at taking policy positions that are appear to be partisan, but we have facts and law to support us in our actions. And that's the defense. That's absolutely should be the defense uh, in all of these cases here. I guess our point has been that lawyers defending American democracy. There has never been a time in our history, uh, with few exceptions, I gather, where the president of the United States has launched a systematic assault on the core norms and principles and values of the law and of our democracy. And that's been going on for several, for several years. Now we have an election, the core institution in our democracy that every objective observer has said was secure, was fair, uh, even the attorney general a bar uh, said that they had no basis for overturning the results of this election. 60 lawsuits in different states and different courts have been thrown out because there's been no basis, no factual basis for this action. And yet, out of the blue, as a Hail Mary, 18 attorneys general file a lawsuit in the Supreme Court to overturn the results in four states. Almost unheard of. Uh, in the circumstances. That's why we think somebody has to look at this. And if the legal profession isn't going to stand up and be heard here, why, why should citizens care? Why should the average person believe there's anything wrong? As opposed, the president is telling them he won the election. The president's saying he won big and it was fraud. Uh, and the courts have completely denied that. And now here come my former brethren, the attorneys general whose credibility on behalf of their states is crucial to their success, whether in whatever capacity they have in terms of lawsuits they bring, in terms of actions they take, defending the state, in terms of opinions they render, and file a frivolous, baseless, totally partisan, totally self-interested lawsuit. That raises serious questions about whether we can have confidence in that office or can have confidence in our democracy. And that's why the legal profession should be standing and talking here and not leave this only to citizens. It also, by the way, goes to the 31 members of Congress, who not only, is, as Les said, come from states that won, but 31 are lawyers. They took an oath of office as Congress people to uphold the law and the Constitution. They also took that as lawyers. And if disciplinary authorities in states are not going to ask questions about that or investigate that, whenever 
will somebody be subject to any kind of sanction other than being drunk, stealing funds, or some basic flaw that anybody would see to be unethical? You mentioned um, that as the uh, co-founder of the Lawyers Defending American Democracy, um, you have uh, called for some action. You were also at one time head of the National Association of Attorneys General when you were Attorney General of Massachusetts. Has that association um, taken any action or done anything to condemn or question what these 18 attorneys general did? Uh, no, it has not. And to some extent, that's not a shock. <laughs> um, what I think was particularly interesting, though, uh, Bill, was that when you look at the states that opposed the action by Ken Paxton of Texas and and the 17 attorneys general who joined, there were, first of all, at least two Republican attorneys general who joined in opposition. Mm -hmm. There were several attorney Republican attorneys general who did not join. Uh, and there were 20 Democratic attorneys general, so to speak, who filed. Now, in my view, one of the things, at least at the time when I was attorney general, this is before there were Republican AGs and Democratic AGs politically, for better or for worse. This was a period where you were attorney general and you knew that if you were seen as a political animal, it undermined your credibility in bringing lawsuits, in defending the state, so that we were proud to be attorneys general, not Republican attorneys general or Democratic attorneys general as a group. In each state, you may well do your politics. But here we're talking about attorneys general on a national stage taking a position that's essentially anti-democratic, anti-federalism, by saying that the core processes of an election, without any factual basis, has been undermined and corrupted and ought to be tossed out. That will affect, that will affect the credibility of every attorney general. And I just wish these individuals understood that. In this era, though, with the Trump tweets and things, there seems to be no barriers, no boundaries to this kind of extreme behavior taken solely to be loyal to a president who has committed himself to undermining the core processes of our democracy and the rule of law. And here on the Bill Press Pod uh, today, we are speaking with Scott uh, Harshbarger, who is a former attorney general for the uh, state of Massachusetts and Les Francis former Deputy White House Chief of Staff to President Jimmy Carter. We'll take a quick break and then we'll be right back with our conversation. During this holiday season, we salute America's labor unions and especially those unions who are sponsors of the Bill Press Pod. So to our sponsors, the great hardworking men and women of the Laborers Union, the Teamsters, the United Food and Commercial Workers, the Smart Union, the Iron Workers, the American Federation of Teachers, and the Steel Workers, we say thank you. Thank you for fighting for American workers. Thank you for keeping America strong. And thank you for your support of the Bill Press Pod. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. 
And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with today's guest, Les Francis, former Deputy White House Chief of Staff to President Carter and Scott Harshbarger co-founder of Lawyers Defending American Democracy, uh, former head of uh, Common Cause nationwide, and uh, two-time attorney general for the state of Massachusetts. Les, I want to come back to you. um, And uh, with members of Congress, you suggested that Democrats might even consider not seating these sorry 16 uh, from the states of Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, uh, and Georgia, uh, who actually voted to support the Texas lawsuit. Um, that is a kind of hardball the Democrats don't usually play, Scott. Democrats, uh, I remember uh, President Obama said, we're not going to hold George W. Bush responsible for anything. We're going to move on. We've got to move on. We've got to look forward. We don't look in the rearview mirror. Uh, you're suggesting this is a time for Democrats to get tough? Exactly. And, and, and I'll, I'll answer that point in just a second, Bill, but I, I want to pick up on what Scott was saying. Sure, please. He is making a compelling and, and thorough case in terms of uh, professional and, and constitutional responsibilities and norms of behavior and so forth, which I think should be pursued and, and, and litigated and, and decided. Complementary to that, I think that elected officials or people who seek to be elected officials, but certainly elected officials who get to office through the political process have, if you will, an ethical or moral obligation to honor those processes, uh, the civic norms, the constitutional norms. We've talked a lot about the Texas lawsuit and, and the possible consequences. Um, but it ain't over yet, right? There are two more um, options, maybe, uh, in front of the president. And he seems, of course, to be willing to exhaust every option, maybe those even that are illegal or unconstitutional. 
Um, let's start with uh, January 6th, when uh, Congress has a duty to certify the results of the electoral of the election as presented by the Electoral College. Normally, it's a routine thing. Both houses, of course, accept it, approve it. The vice president announces it. This time, there are two or three members of the House who say they're going to challenge the results in several states, and at least one incoming U.S. Senator, Tommy Tuberville, who has indicated he's going to demand the same vote uh, in the in the Senate. I mean, this is just extraordinary, and it's unacceptable. Uh, and, and we need to, uh, in the political arena, hold them accountable. The people need to know what these folks are all about uh, and what they're trying to do. They are, they are attacking a fundamental principle of our constitutional system, which is the conduct and respect for the results of free and fair elections. That is stuff that goes on in authoritarian regimes, would-be authoritarian regimes. It is not something uh, that the United States of America has has uh, been known for, or do we want it to be known for? Now, uh, if you think that's bad, all right, it could get even worse. It's reported that just last Friday evening in the Oval Office, uh, the president met with um, Sidney Powell, whom you've um, mentioned a couple of times, uh, an attorney who was working with the Trump campaign, but she was considered so extreme that Rudy Giuliani fired her. But that Trump met with her and former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, and that they actually discussed in the Oval Office invocation of the Insurrection Act in order to declare martial law so the military, they would suspend the election and the military would conduct a new election, at least in certain states. I mean, how unconstitutional can you get? Or is it constitutional? Look, the action, this is Scott, and you may want to hear from Les about this. He's got some powerful words here because we're beyond uh, simply uh, having violations of law here. We're having actions by a president of the United States to totally undermine core institutions of democracy. And the shocking thing isn't that the president is taking this action. We have been warned that he would do this. The people he's listening to are extreme fanatics with extreme behavior. The sad part is that res allegedly responsible elected officials and other Republican officials are enablers of this, are remaining silent. Silence, silence is the enemy here. Uh, we must speak out. That's why we formed Lawyers Defending American Democracy. But I, would, I found it almost impossible to believe that we would have a president of the United States who at this stage would be supported in his efforts to undermine, to essentially engage in a coup uh, to reverse the results of a free and fair election uh, and continue his process of lying, of shameless behavior, and even grifting with the amount of money that he's raising doing this. So the behavior here is so beyond the pale that in my opinion, any lawyer who stands up and says there's a legal basis for this uh, is really in violation of our ethical codes and responsibilities. And as Les points out, 
certainly as elected officials, uh, in undermining the confidence and trust uh, in our system of democracy. We've, ne we've never in my lifetime seen this. This cannot go unpunished. It may not lead to, to it, I don't know what it would lead to, but this cannot be forgotten. We, the Democratic Party, the people who won here cannot pretend that we can just go on. We do need to go on and govern, but we cannot simply let this kind of behavior go unpunished, unheld, people held unaccountable for engaging essentially uh, as elected officials, as appointed officials in violating their oaths of office, violating the laws and constitution of the United States. And I point particularly to my profession here. If an independent legal profession is not going to stand up, as John Lewis would say, if not now, when? If not us, who? This is our responsibility because if the center does not hold, things fall apart and we are in a very difficult situation, not only for Joe Biden, right. but for us as a country, as a democracy, and frankly, as a country devoted to the constraints that keep us free, the rule of law. So, Les, what then should Congress do about this? I mean, it, it, you know, a lot of Democrats will just be tempted to say, oh, let's just move on, right, and, and govern and, and not, not take any action. We shouldn't be surprised at anything that Trump does. I mean, we knew when he was coming in what he was capable of and, and his lack of uh, any sort of uh, uh, moral compass uh, as it relates to our system and whatnot. I think Scott has hit on a very important point, is that I, and that is the behavior of his party folding and going along with it. That is the most surprising and disappointing thing that so so few Republicans have been willing to stand up uh, and, and protest. Democrats have to. They just have to. Now, I think going forward, there's probably sort of three strategic strands here. One is that uh, President-elect Biden, when he's sworn in and, and Vice President Harris, their administration is going to have to continually look for common ground on public policy issues. Uh, whether it's uh, infrastructure or health care or any of the other things that, that the country must deal with. And, and they're going to have to try to find Republicans they can work with. I, and I, I don't fault them for that. I think Democrats in the House and the Senate, especially, I mean, who knows what's going to happen on, on January 5th with the Senate election. But whatever happens, both houses, both chambers are going to be closely divided. So the Democrats are going to have to use whatever procedural and process options are available to them to, to sort of jam the Republicans, to make it tough for the Republicans uh, to, to block uh, the administration or to, to make mischief. Then there's the third strand, which I would argue includes the DNC, uh, uh, other Democratic officials outside of Congress, uh, allied groups. And we're going to have to really take it to the Republicans. I mean, we're going to have to play hardball uh, rhetorically and tactically and, and make it. That's why I've suggested this notion of, of not seeing the, 
it was, I called them the sorry 16. Somebody has suggested the seditious 16. So I have to decide on how to brand them. But the, that, that, that these, these mm-hmm. folks should not be allowed to get away with this un, untouched, unscarred. They should pay a price for it. And we should do that uh, whenever uh, the Republicans uh, engage in activity that, that undercuts our, our basic uh, fundamental uh, precepts and principles of a representative democracy. And that's what they're doing. This is an attack on our system, pure and simple. As Scott, that echoes yeah. the point you made. I mean, this 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 is really an attack on the on the fundamentals of our democracy. When you start talking about martial law right. in the Oval yeah. Office, this is this is a terrorist act. I mean, if you really want to be uh, realistic about this, uh, we essentially have a president who's encouraging terror. Um, when you talk about undermining core principles. But here's the thing to remember, Les's points are very important. But here's here's the problem. We're Democrats. I mean, most of us are in this room. And one of the great benefits to being a Republican is you have the Democrats as opponents. And we have terrific ability <laughs> to pull defeat from the jaws of victory. We 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 really believe we won this election when in fact by the sheer smallest margin. Uh, only Joe Biden could have won this election uh, here, and the Trump would have won again. Uh, we have got to stay unified and identify core things that re- that really need to be focused upon, and let Biden and Harris govern, but then engage in exactly what Les is talking about. I use terms lightly, terms lightly. Uh, a former sheriff of Berkshire County, who was a great supporter of mine warned me one time, don't ever bring a knife to a gunfight. And this this is, is, with all due respect and without using the violent term, we are in a gunfight. And this we can't back down. And, and because what we're doing is using the actions of the president. Now, let's remember that 70 million people voted for this for the president. That means either we didn't do a good job of explaining why these were serious problems that relate to the quality of their life, or we didn't explain enough about what the rule of law means and the Constitution means to each and every person, which I think is one of the real issues here. It's not just social media and cable news that have divided us. It's simply a lack of understanding and trust and belief that government matters that the law and the Constitution are key elements of our success as a society. Uh, And I don't mean to get too highfalutin, but that's also why I am very concerned when lawyers do not step up here and when particularly when attorneys general who carry with it the responsibility of enforcing the rule of law, ensuring our values and norms, take actions totally to undermine that, that must be, that must be, they must be held accountable. Uh, and Les, just ending with you, did you ever think you would see the day when, uh, I'm not saying he's going to do this, but a president would even entertain the notion no. of declaring martial law to overturn an election that the other guy won by 7 million or more votes, and no Republican leader that I have heard as of now 
not Mitch McConnell, not Kevin McCarthy, has condemned him for it. It's 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 just amazing. I mean, I, I can't find the word for to describe how shocking that fact is, Bill. Uh, you know, you might expect a few outliers. I mean, the Louis Gohmerts and the, you know, unfortunately, uh, uh, my congressman. No Tom Brooks. Well, I got Tom McClintock, which is almost as bad. Right. You know, a few goofballs on the edge you might expect to, to fall in line. But to have a majority of the conference on the Republican side sign on to this this lawsuit, that's a that's a bad sign. And the fact that none of them, I haven't seen one quote since that story broke on Friday night about that Oval Office. Look, I've been in the Oval Office. I've had meetings in the Oval Office. I know the kinds of discussions that typically go on in the Oval Office. This ain't one of them. <laughs> this is this is <laughs> right. this is unheard of. And 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 it's obscene. I mean, it really is obscene. And, and the fact that we have not heard one word of concern coming from the Republican side. Watching the talk shows on Sunday, I thought it was very interesting. There, there were obviously uh, lots of stories about the vaccine, maybe some problems with distribution, uh, new vaccines online. They were all being talked about. There was a lot of talk about what the Russians have done. Clearly, the Russians involved in hacking into our our uh, computer systems at not only the government level but private sector in an unprecedented attack by the Russians. The third story of the weekend should have been and should have been discussed was that Oval Office uh, right. uh, orgy, if you will, and it wasn't talked about by anybody. And and I find that alarming because of the three stories. I mean, I'm not saying the other two aren't important, but an Oval Office discussion about invoking martial law, that ought to at least gets somebody's attention. One would think. Yeah. Well, let me ask. Let me end by asking you both, having discussed uh, the outrageous things are going on and the dangers and the threats and the need to take action. What do you think is going to happen on January 20? Uh, is there some reassurance? Do you th have any confidence that we will see a peaceful transfer of power? Uh, Scott, I'll start with you. I think there will be a peaceful transfer of power uh, because it appears that the institutions will survive. And we also ought to remember that some of the heroes here are Republican state officials who did their jobs, in the words of Bill Belichick, the, uh, coach, the uh, head coach of the uh, of New England Patriots, did their job. They upheld the law. They did simply did their job and stood the course and were vilified for it. Somehow, I think we will have that peaceful transition. What will be the reaction uh, from people who do not accept that result because the president of the United States has convinced them that they, it's a fraud that to delegitimize uh, the Biden-Harris administration, uh, I simply don't know. I fear greatly, and I don't mean to be totally paranoid, that things are escalating here. We have mad King George in the White House, and he's running amok with no adult supervision uh, at this point. So I can't speak to that. I think it's just, I think unfortunately, 
that a president of the United States is not willing, as Les said at the beginning, to accept history, the processes of democracy, and at some point accept the, and reconcile himself to having lost an election, which he may come back and try to win uh, later on, um, is, the, is the sad fact. And what is equally concerning to me is that how many Americans mm-hmm. do not are not sure that a peaceful transition of power in a democracy is a good thing. That is what really ought to shake us all, ought to shake us as lawyers, ought to shake us as people who have served the public uh, and the public interest uh, and try to figure out how to deal uh, with that. I am simply hopeful that we will be able to turn the page. But what happens after that, I think, is clearly way up in the air. There's still too many Hail Marys that are trying to be tossed here. Uh and to you, Les, the same question, a peaceful transition of power on January 20? Well, I'll tell you, Bill, I hope for that. I'd like to believe it'll happen, but I'm not certain and because I don't know how far this guy and the, some of the people around him are willing to go. I believe that some of the guardrails will hold and institutions will stand up. We have to have some faith in the military in this regard, because if they were to declare martial law, for example, who's going to enforce it? And and I can't see the uniformed services of the United States uh, being part of that. So I'm hopeful that it'll be a peaceful, but I think Scott has hit what's really the issue here. This president and his enablers are inciting violence. Um, uh, and, and there ought to be repercussions for that. That, that is, that is dangerous, dangerous territory. We saw what almost happened in Michigan with the threats there. Uh, we saw it, uh, with the mayor of Wichita. I mean, there have been threats of violence. There, there has been actual violence with, the. you know, assaults on demonstrators and what, uh, but the, a big percentage, I don't know what the number is, but, you know, those 70 some odd million people who voted for Trump uh, within that group are, are people who are ready to, to take up arms. No question about it. And he knows that and he's playing to them. And that's it for today's podcast with Les Francis and Scott Harshbarger. Thank you so much for listening We wish you now a very happy holiday for you and your family and a new year that soon finds us COVID-free and back to life as normal. On Christmas Day, by the way, we'll be back with a special podcast with Susan Rice, who's going to be a top White House advisor in the Biden administration. Meanwhile, stay safe, wear your mask. Happy holidays.